This is Lab Medicine Rounds, a curated podcast for physicians, laboratory professionals, and students. I'm your host, Justin Kreuter, the Bowtie Bandit of Blood, a transfusion medicine pathologist at Mayo Clinic. Today, we're rounding with Dr. Anand Padmanban, a physician scientist and consultant in the divisions of hematopathology, transfusion medicine, and experimental pathology at Mayo Clinic. And we're going to be talking about new ways to detect HIT antibodies. Thanks for joining us today, Dr. Padmanban. Thank you so much, Dr. Kreuter. It is such a pleasure to be on your show. People may not know this acronym HIT, so maybe can you get us started with what is HIT and why is it so important for clinicians really to correctly diagnose HIT? Sure, uh, that's a great question. HIT stands for heparin-induced thrombocytopenia. It is a side effect of heparin treatment. A heparin, as many of your listeners may know, is a very commonly used anticoagulant. In fact, it's estimated that more than 10 million patients receive heparin every year. And a small percentage of patients that receive heparin develop this bad side effect called HIT that can cause a number of problems, the biggest of which is thrombosis or blood clotting. I see. Why is it important then for people to get the diagnosis right? Uh, So in other words, I guess it's important to not miss a diagnosis of HIT and important not to overdiagnose HIT as well. Sure. No, that's correct. Now, HIT is one of those diseases that carries high risk of morbidity and mortality. So for example, in a large uh, epidemiologic study that we published on a couple of years ago, we found that uh, more than 50 patients every day in the United States develop HIT, and roughly five of those individuals will die during the hospitalization. So very high mortality rate of 10%. So it's really critical to know exactly who that person is who has developed HIT so that we can appropriately treat him. But the flip side of the coin is that there are far more people suspected of HIT than actually that have HIT because the presentations of HIT can mimic those of other commonly seen illnesses in our patients in a hospital. Uh, Sepsis is a common example. And so when you misdiagnose someone or think someone's got HIT, you end up putting them through treatments, which in turn have high risks themselves. So it's really important to diagnose accurately. It's also important not to overdiagnose this disease. Wow. So as I hear you talking there, I mean, I think you really illustrated it well for our listeners, this idea about how the clinical picture, there can be a lot of overlap. And so then that takes us into my next question, which is, okay, what do we really know then about how laboratory testing can help clinicians get this diagnosis right? As a laboratorian, that's, that question is really close to my heart, and I've been working on this for, for more than a decade. So a little bit of history. Back in the 1990s, three different groups, one of them led by my mentor, Dr. Richard Astor in Milwaukee, made the discovery that HIT antibodies are directed to a protein uh, that's normally inside a platelet called platelet factor 4 or PF4. They then recognized that if you take PF4, mix it with heparin, put it down on an ELISA plate, and then add a patient sample, and if that sample had HIT antibodies, it would bind to those targets and you would get a positive ELISA reaction. And so that sort of revolutionized testing because prior to that, 
It was primarily a clinical diagnosis. And so this was a big, big advance. However, soon people realized that while this assay or family of ELISA assays were very sensitive at picking up those patients that have hit, they were also highly nonspecific. And by that, what I mean is if you have 10 results that come out positive in the ELISA, only about five of those results are from patients that truly have hit. So now you have five misdiagnosed patients who you're going to likely treat with powerful non-heparin alternative anticoagulants. Now, the problem with some of these alternative anticoagulants is that they do not have antidotes as opposed to heparin, which does, and their bleeding risk is significantly higher. So the sort of the first group of tests of these ELISAs, uh, a group in Canada based at McMaster University invented a wonderful assay called the serotonin release assay. It's a platelet activation-based assay where platelets are incubated with radio-label serotonin. If you add a patient sample from someone who's got hit antibodies, platelets will get activated and it will degranulate so the serotonin will be released. So you essentially, you measure radioactivity and if it's above a certain level, you would call the patient hit positive. While it's an amazing assay, the problem, as I mentioned, with radioactivity and technical complexity is that it's offered by very few labs in the United States, uh, probably four or five labs. So if you're uh, a hospital in New York, you have a patient with it, you want to answer quickly, you want to know whether to treat or not to treat, it could be several days before you have those results that can help you uh, treat your patient. Wow, so you're really highlighting there that there's this time delay that comes into play. And when you're talking about the ELISA test, that first test you mentioned, you talked about really this risk of over-diagnosing. Like you said, you'd, you'll have 10 positive results and maybe half of those are going to be a true positive. So a, a false positive result uh, potential. So that gets into the idea on why we needed that serotonin release assay to confirm that HIC diagnosis. Am I getting that right? Yes, absolutely. The SRA is often used to confirm diagnoses just because the ELISA has really got a high false positive rate. But, you know, the power of the ELISA is you can run that in your hospital. In fact, most hospitals do it. Our hospital here at the Mayo Clinic does it. But the SRA is sufficiently complex such that it has to be sent out. So while it's a great assay, there's a big time delay associated with getting those results. I see. Join us for a case-based workshop, Clinical and Laboratory Aspects of Hemophilia and Thrombosis, a virtual Friday symposium preceding the 62nd American Society of Hematology annual meeting. Visit mayoclinicglab.com forward slash 2020 mayosymp for more information. With that background and history, Going forward, how did the process of diagnosing HIT be updated or improved? Sure. So this is a very interesting question, something that I sort of stumbled upon uh, when I started at the Blood Center of Wisconsin in Milwaukee some years back. I observed firsthand problems with diagnosis, issues with delayed diagnosis, and a number of bleeds that occurred in patients who were misdiagnosed. So initially working uh, for Dr. Astor and then alongside him, we made the observation that when you take 
platelets. Just so these are normal, healthy donor platelets. Add a little bit of this protein I mentioned called PF4, or platelet factor 4, which is the target of antibodies, and then expose that mixture to patient samples. You can have a sensitive and specific way to detect platelet activating or pathogenic antibodies. In other words, the accuracy of the SRA, but with a significantly more technically simple format. So no use of radioactivity, an assay time that's just a couple of hours, and the number of platelets I didn't mention. For the SRA, for every single test, you need 21 million platelets for that assay to work. With this new assay using PF4, which we gave it a name, it's called the PEA, which stands for PF4 dependent P select and expression assay. You can get away with about a million platelets, so roughly a tenfold decrease in the number of platelets. So, based on some beta testing uh, using a small number of samples, we were able to show that this appears to be as accurate or better. And then we found that this is actually more sensitive, it's as specific, but even more sensitive that it picks up antibodies in the earliest phases of HIT. So for example, I know Dr. Croyder, you're an astute physician, you see a patient with HIT, at the earliest sign you pick it up and you say, hey, I'm gonna draw a sample, send it to the lab for testing. Now, if you run the SRA, you might get a false negative result because the antibodies are not at the level that could cause serotonin release. However, we've noticed in multiple patients, which have been published in a few papers, that PF4-enhanced assays, such as the PEA, appear to pick up pathogenic antibodies in the earliest sign of disease. So we had some of these signals from early studies that this might work. And more recently, we did a large prospective multi-center study to formally evaluate the diagnostic utility of the PEA. Wow. So right there it sounds like you're you're talking about really advancing the diagnostic process of hit on on several fronts you're you're talking about sensitivity you're talking about specificity uh you're talking about the ease of um a lab bringing in a test like this and so decreased uh turnaround time what does the future hold for HIT testing? You, you, we've talked about the ELISA, we've talked about the serotonin release assay, we've talked about this new PEA assay. You know, in five years' time, what do you think HIT testing is going to look like in this country? So I think that over time, people will gravitate to PF4 enhanced assays. By that I mean the PEA, a modified version of the SRA that people are now calling the PF4 SRA, where you do the SRA reaction except with PF4 in there. Various novel readouts of the assay. In other words, it doesn't have to be serotonin that one measures. It doesn't have to be P-selectin that one measures. The deployment of the PEA assay as a diagnostic assay, I think, will also help with decentralized testing over time. In other words, right now, if you have five SRA labs in the country, maybe there's going to be 25 PEA labs in the country, allowing for easier and quicker access to that testing. However, I think the biggest revolution, if I may call it, or quantum leap is going to happen with advances in being able to simplify this new technology such that it can be run by the patient bedside. And what I'm envisioning here is sort of a PEA in a box. You give the hospital lab a kit, Tell them, open the box, you have all elements 
that you need for running that test in the box. So that's where I think we need to go. And I feel that with a number of advances that my group and others are making, we will be there within uh, certainly the next few years. It's <laughs> impressive right there. I just think you described the dream of every ICU consultant attending physician that I've worked with to be able to have something uh, ready and at the bedside point of care that can help them with these challenging patients. That makes me think of another question. If you are a pathologist and like you said, you've been really kind of digging at this diagnostic challenge of HIT for over a decade now, and that this diagnosis had been clinical diagnosis. I was wondering if you could, for our listeners, right, we've got students that are listening to this podcast. How has your relationship with your clinical colleagues helped you in this career to really toward in your pathway to advance the practice of medicine? Sure. Great question, because everything that I've been involved in in my research career has been translational. I've interfaced with basic bench scientists. So, for example, my lab has PhD level postdocs. They teach me chemistry and biochemistry like I teach in medicine. And I interface frequently with physicians of various specialties, you know, published with intensive care physicians, anesthesiologists, transfusion med and hematology. And they teach me things that they see at the bedside that they've seen time and time again, which I may not have seen. I love the part about marrying what I learn from the lab as a biochemist and from the clinic as somebody who's seeing patients, who's talking to physicians, taking care of patients. And so I feel really blessed that I've had the opportunity to work in both worlds. And I think the real progress in diagnostics or therapeutics, and that's something I didn't mention, we're increasingly getting interested in novel hit therapeutics. And I think over the next months and years, we will uh, have very interesting data to show because right now, again, one in 10 hit patients dies because of, I think, suboptimal treatments. I think being able to talk to various groups, uh, learn from various groups, helps us understand what the real problems are. What is it that they're facing at the bedside? and then applying basic biochemical techniques to try to solve those problems. That's wonderful. I mean, what I'm hearing in, in your answer there, that statistic of one in 10 patients that has hit uh, dies, I think in your answer of collaboration, this really highlights about mission over your role, right? And that you may be a pathologist, a colleague may be a hematologist or ICU uh, physician, and, and it's really uh, the mission comes first in that collaboration and how we need to really have everybody working together. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I agree. We've been rounding with Dr. Anand Padmanabhan about HIT testing. Thank you for taking the time to discuss this with us. Thank you so much for having me. For more information on this topic, be sure to register for a case-based workshop, Clinical and Laboratory Aspects of Hemophilia and Thrombosis, a virtual Friday symposium that precedes the 62nd American Society of Hematology annual meeting by visiting mayocliniclabs.com slash 2020 Mayo S-Y-M-P. If you've enjoyed Lab Medicine Rounds podcast, please subscribe. We invite you to share your thoughts and suggestions via email. Please direct any suggestions to mcleducation at mayo.edu 
and reference this podcast. Until our next rounds together, we encourage you to continue to connect lab medicine and the clinical practice through insightful conversations. Mm -hmm.